This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 63, recorded on March 10th. 2017. I'm your host, Tim Cry from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And I'm here with a guest and a new co-host. The new co-host is Dr. Randy Olszewski. Welcome, Randy. Thank you, Jim. And Randy is a section chief here at Nationwide Children's Hospital in the Division of Hematology Oncology and the director of our long-term follow-up clinic. And uh, he's here given that our guest is here to talk about uh, late effects of chemotherapy. Our guest is Dr. Javier Blanco. Welcome, Hello. Javier. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Javier is an associate professor in the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences at State University of New York in Buffalo, right? Correct. Great. So you're originally from Argentina. I am, yes. Uh, what uh, what brought you to the United States? Okay, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Uh, basically, I did my, po- my postdoctoral training in San Jude under the mentorship of uh, Mary Relling. So needless to say, there was a fantastic opportunity and you know, really enjoyed my time at St. Jude. I learned many, many things. I can talk more about that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so that was, um, so it was obviously her stature and the, and, and the stature of the institution that brought you here. So you land, was the idea to come here permanently or you sort of got stuck here? You liked it so much you wanted to Yeah, stay? it's interesting. It's a combination of factors. Uh, Obviously, when I was doing my, my, my PhD in Argentina, St. Jude was well known there. It's an institution that is known all over the world. So coming to doing uh, uh, my training in St. Jude was a, a no-brainer. But my original intention, or our original intention with my wife was to go back to Argentina. But because of a combination of uh, political and socioeconomical factors, um, but we decided to stay in the U.S. for a couple of more years, and that turns out to be, you know, 15 more years or so, so far. Yeah, great. Well, <laughs> we're, we're glad to have you here. Um, what, when you were growing up in Argentina, uh, what sort of brought you to your PhD scientist? So what, what, mm-hmm. what gave you that interest in, in pursuing science and especially in terms of drugs and pharmaceuticals? Yeah. I'm a clinical chemist by training. Uh, so I'm used to be, in clinical environments, um, my mother is a university professor, but she's, she's a linguistics, you know, so nothing to do with medicine. My mother, my father, he used to work for uh, the government and in, um, as an administrator. So science, uh, one can say, <laughs> it was not in my blood, <laughs> but I was always interested in, 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 in the scientific process. Uh, right. You know, the, the attainment of knowledge through hypothesis testing. Why I choose clinical biochemistry, I, I have to admit it was simply by because of, of, of it was attractive to me at that time. Um, then after getting my professional degree, I couldn't find a good job in a hospital. But I knew at that time a couple of professors that were informal mentors. So I started having conversations with them, and unofficially, one professor 
Alfredo Fleury, he invited me to basically, you know, do an informal rotation in his lab, and one thing led to another, and I ended up uh, doing a, a, a PhD thesis with him. This is one of the disciplines that's very close to clinical medicine, mm -hmm. obviously, clinical chemistry and therapeutics. Uh, many PhD scientists are much further from that piece, and so you're very close to clinical medicine. How have you found it to be in terms of, is it difficult since you're not a physician, so you don't yes. see that end, but to know when you're developing drugs or, you know, what's going to be appropriate or what need, what's needed or what the gaps are or yeah. what the challenges are? It is difficult, uh, but uh, it's difficult, challenging, but it's also exciting. I guess it's a, the, the main or the key ingredient it f is finding the right people to collaborate with and to talk with people that can teach you and people that are interested in what you can bring to the table, people that are also hardworking people. Surround <laughs> yourself with good people, right? Yes, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a key factor. That's the key yeah. to success in probably any endeavor. <laughs> probably any, yeah. Yeah, in any field. Yeah. Well, you gave a talk today on your work in cardio toxicity, so mm -hmm. uh, namely the fact that certain drugs are very toxic to the heart, and obviously the heart is a very important yeah. organ, and so it's a it's a very important issue, and I think I, I kind of wanted to get into that a little bit, because it's, it's you, I learned a lot from your, your well, talk today, you. because uh, previously I really didn't understand a lot about why, so you talked a lot about doxorubicin, mm -hmm. uh, anthracycline category of drugs, which are involved in many different the treatment of many different cancers, sarcomas and leukemias and others. And you guys have discovered, or at least you have an understanding now, I'm not sure how much you were involved in that discovery, about why those drugs are toxic to the heart. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, you want me to go really sure. in well, depth? You know, try to keep, it at, a, try to keep it at a lay level, but just yeah. in, in general. You could use technical terms, yeah. but just define them. Yeah. yeah as, as you probably know, um, the vast majority of the drugs that are used for the treatment of cancer and for the treatment of pretty much most human diseases are not that specific in terms of the targets that they have across the body. And that's, as I said, certainly the case with anti-cancer drugs. And um, so they are promiscuous, uh, not only tumor cells, but also cells uh, in the body that are non-tumoral, that are healthy cells. So uh, it turns out that the heart tissue is exquisitely susceptible to the effects of a particular type of ant uh, anti-cancer drugs known as anthracycline because, for example, heart tissue is relatively ill-equipped to deal with the stress that these drugs induce in the heart tissue. So the heart or heart tissue in general lacks, for example, certain antioxidant enzymes so when there is oxidative stress in the heart muscle, there is damage just simply because of its inability to cope with that stress. Well, what was interesting to me is that um, there's metabolism of the drugs in the heart cells. Exactly. So we think of metabolism usually happening in the liver. Yes. And it happens there as well. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case with these particular drugs, there's enzymes inside the heart cell. When the drug gets in, it converts it to... A toxic metabolite. A toxic metabolite, right. yeah. Does that not happen in other cells? It gets into other cells and they don't have those enzymes, other no, normal cells? Yeah, no, the pathways that, that we are 
of working on are fairly common to different types of cells. They are. So these metabolic routes are probably occurring in different cell types. It's just that, one more time, certain cell types are more susceptible to these uh, toxic or potentially toxic metabolites. Right. Yeah, I like, I like the idea of considering the heart, and this is not by any means uh, my idea or has a drug metabolizing organ. This is something that, for example, the pharmaceutical industry is very aware of. And again, there have been recent developments in oncology for tyrosine kinase inhibitors that also undergo metabolism in cardiac muscle. Do you think, why would a heart muscle want to do that? Do you think this is <laughs> to per- normally to protect itself, to metabolize toxins? Yes, I think it's a, a way to to. Uh, get rid of uh, potential toxins. But then yeah. in this case, with this particular drug, it's a way that it damages it, itself. It, it ends up uh, damaging yeah, yeah, the, the muscle. Yes. That's kind of interesting. Yes. And I think um, getting to sort of Rand, one of Randy's interests, the damage is something that seems to go on for years. Randy, maybe you can tell us about uh, what you see long-term, you know, so the do we think the d- damage just happened and then we see the effects later, or is there continuing damage over years, even though the drugs and metabolites are long gone? Yes, well, it's a fascinating question because I, I don't think sometimes we know when the damage occurs. Uh, clinically, we'll see patients who are seemingly do fine for years, and they'll be 5, 10, 15 years off therapy, relatively young people whose hearts start to fail. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have very crude methods using you know, 2D echocardiograms and other things to try to to, uh, to detect that damage early. But really, what we're what we need is is some biochemical markers mm-hmm. or some better testing um, uh, to try to pick that up at a at, a, um, at an earlier stage. Uh, colleagues here with cardiology are looking at things like cardiac MRI, for example, to see if they can pick that damage up much earlier than doing echocardiograms. So it's a fascinating area. The only biomarker we now have, or we don't even have it yet, is another thing that you talked about, which is the specific genotype. So these mm-hmm. enzymes that are in the cells have variations of di- that differ amongst different people, and those variations determine how good of an enzyme it is, and so some of those are sort of more potent at causing t- toxicity, yes. right? Mm-hmm. So what you're saying, Randy, is if we could use those earlier and know who's at more risk, maybe we could modify their what they're given, their exposure, and reduce the long-term effects. Potentially, and also we know survivors, uh, as a general rule, don't take good care of themselves compared to the general population. They don't exercise as much. Things like hypertension, smoking, weight reduction, so that, that is, those are our tools to try to, to convince these, these patients to take good care of themselves. But again, having a better uh, marker of that they're more at risk for cardiotoxicity, it, it would go a long way as well. At this point, we, we, from your data, we have some genotypes, so we, can, we could screen patients. Mm-hmm. Yet I don't think that's a common practice yet, right? So what, is it, what yeah. is it going to take in terms of convincing people we need to figure out which patients are at more risk because of these genotypes. Well, I know that studies, uh, prospective genotyping studies are being planned, and they're probably going to be performed in the, in the near future. Those studies will involve genotyping from 
maybe just to start with a handful of these candidate genetic variants that are potentially associated with uh, the incidence of cardiotoxicity and also they will require this follow-up of uh, patients over time. Now, while I say the, the, the word follow-up, um, a limitation of this study is related to the fact that these patients are going to be, I mean, there is a need to follow them up for a number of years. So that makes these studies log logistically challenging. So here's here's another but, question. The, these enzymes that determine which, you know, how much of a metabolite is being produced, are those metabolites what treat the cancer? And will the ones who might have less toxicity, are mm -hmm. they going to have less treatment effect, efficacy, potentially? Okay, that's an excellent question. In regards to these uh, antracycline alcohol metabolites, that are the ones that damage the right. cardiac muscle, it has been shown that they have low or very low anti-tumor activity. Ah. Okay. So, so the risk well, is pretty small that this the is risk, a problem. Yes, the risk of inhibiting the formation of these metabolites from the point of view of efficacy is almost negligible. However, yeah, the balance efficacy and toxicity and the formation of these metabolites is hard to control, especially in hard muscle. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything we could think about doing to increase the amount of these drugs that are metabolized in the liver as opposed to in the heart, like yeah. induce enzymes in the liver so that you reduce the exposure of the yes. heart muscle? That's a possibility. It's uh, something that is also being explored. There are molecules that transport these uh, um, entities inside and out different tissues. And these molecules are known as uh, drug transporters. So if one can regulate the activity of these drug transporters to either, to either, sorry, uh, favor influx or efflux, it depends. Uh, one can control eventually the flow of these molecules and decrease toxicity and or increase efficacy. That's, as you know, probably very easy to say, but it's very challenging to do in practice. Yeah. because of overlaps of transporters that do similar things and also due to the fact that these molecules are expressed in tissues that may be working just fine and they are essential for other biological functions. So inhibiting them or increasing the activities of these transporters may not be a good idea because they might generate certain problems. Yeah, additional risks toxicities. and benefits for every, yeah. everything that we do. That's why drug design, drug development is more complicated than rocket science. Yeah. <laughs> no? Yeah, well, you know, another, <laughs> there are other drug formulations of the anthracycline, yes. like pegylated liposomal doxorubicin, that seem to have less cardiotoxicity. Have studies been looked at? Do these genotypes also put those, uh, you know, at risk for toxicity with those drugs? Again, excellent question. To the best of my knowledge, there has not been yet studies looking at uh, genetic risk factors with liposomal formulations of anthracyclines. There have not, okay. There have not, so and, far. And have you, Randy, have you seen long-term toxicities from those formulations, or does it, in your clinical practice, you just don't have enough experience? You just don't have enough experience. I do have a question, though. Um, we also have a medication now that can reduce 
or theoretically reduced cardiotoxicity when mm-hmm. given concomitantly with, with doxorubicin and, and donorubicin is the... Dexroxoxane. Yeah, yeah, and uh, how does that impact the metabolism? Because I always thought that was a iron. Uh, it affected yes. iron metabolism. <clears throat> as far as I know, it has no impact on the activity of this enzyme, but it's, it has cardioprotective activity. Uh, that compound. Is that a, then a, do a different mechanism? Yes, yeah. yes. It's mostly, as you said, um, related to imbalances of uh, iron metabolism in, in cardiac muscle. That's, that's the, the mechanism of action. Mm-hmm. It's not an antioxidant. People have tried antioxidants because of this hypothesis of oxidative stress, mm-hmm. like vitamin E supplementation and other o- antioxidants but they don't seem to work in the clinical setting. So uh, they work very well in animal models or in cell-based models, but not in in real patients. That's something that um, is important to keep in mind. That, yes. Uh, we get a lot of excitement about results in animal tests or laboratory, and mm-hmm. then the, then it turns out there's it's too complicated to work in, yes. in people sometimes, or th- there's too many other variables and factors. What do you think is um, sort of the next big challenge or area of study that you're interested in doing along these lines, or uh, where do you see the future of this field? Mm-hmm. I think um, an area in which um, we're trying to uh, make some progress is uh, related to uh, a new family of drugs that are based on uh, monoclonal antibodies. So monoclonal antibodies that can target specific molecular targets. Uh, but these, um, the use of these drugs is also associated with uh, specific types of toxicities and efficacy issues, and they have a completely different pharmacodynamic as compared to small molecule drugs. So that's something also that we would like to explore because, again, People initially thought that by targeting specific uh, in molecular uh, entities uh, in us with these um, with these drugs was gonna be fantastic from the point of view of uh, minimizing or pretty much eliminating toxicity, but that's that's not the case, and that's also related to the fact that most targets and most proteins are expressed pretty much everywhere or different times and the expression of these entities may be dynamic and it may change over time. So, so it, is the cardiac toxicity, you did list a whole a yes, list of antibodies that, that all have cardiac toxicity as well as some other small molecule drugs with cardiac. So is the idea that those antibodies are actually binding their antigen that they're supposed to be targeted to but it's on the heart muscle or is there a yes. different mechanism? Yeah, that's the classic story <coughs> with trastuzumab. When, when trastuzumab... Um, was launched in the clinic, the dogma was, okay, there's not that much expression of the target of trastuzumab in cardiac muscle, so this is not going to be a problem. And quickly, just one year or two years after the clinical implementation of of this drug in uh, trastuzumab in the breast cancer setting, they started to uh, see the, the cases of cardiac toxicity. And that was due to the fact that they misjudged how relevant the pathway was for cardiac physiology. They thought originally it was not a particularly important pathway, you know, a relevant target for 
the cardiac tissue, and it turns out that it's essential for cardiac muscle function. Now, I noticed you had two antibodies on that list against HER2, but one of them said no cardiac toxicity. Yes. How do you explain that then? Huh. Or uh, is that not known? I don't think it's well known. Uh, the dynamics of these targets in cardiac tissue is not as simple as uh, I was originally hypothesized. And uh, let me try to explain this. It turns out that these targets work in combination with some other proteins that are associated to them in cardiac muscle. So it depends on the partner mm -hmm. that is surrounding or next to these proteins. How, how the. Sure. And you, and I know it, it did say that it was against a different area of the HER2. And yes. So maybe that area is obscured by binding to these other proteins. Exactly. Or, exactly. So, yeah. Okay. It's obscure or it's not essential for a certain pathway that is somewhat unique in, in cardiac tissue versus yeah. or breast cancer tissue. Yeah. Interesting. Well, it's all very complicated. Yes. Uh, it is. it's, it's not uh, something that, that we, it can solve in a short amount of time. Last thing I want to touch on, you you did talk about some doing some animal modeling, some dogs. You showed a cute picture of your dog. <laughs> How closely related are dogs and humans in terms of this toxicity and what are the studies that are undergoing in dogs? What are we gonna what can we expect to learn from dog studies soon that could affect our, our human okay. practice? Hey, that's an, another excellent question. I, one thing that I know, for example, is that dogs are excellent models for human lymphomas. For some reason, the lymphomas in dogs resemble very closely the human counterpart at the molecular level. So I know also that um, there have been very significant research progresses in terms of uh, developing uh, drugs or drug candidates that are active in canine cancer patients and that seem to be also active in the human counterpart. In the case of toxicity, dogs are also very good models of these anthracycline-related cardiotoxicities. So again, the cardiotoxicity that dogs develop resembled in both the, the, the clinical manifestations is very similar to the human counterpart. This is why we try to do some work on, on canine cancer patients to see if we can... Um, you know, somehow translate findings between either back and forth, you know, <laughs> from right. humans to dogs and from dogs to humans. Yeah, that'd be <laughs> great if we can, our man's best friend can continue to help him and her. Yes. <laughs> Randy, do you have any other questions for our guest? No, I don't. It's a great talk today, and we learned a great deal, and I think that science is moving forward. Do you have any, um, for, the, for a, a trainee maybe who's thinking about, wanting to go into clinical pharmacology or, or clinical chemistry or this area? Have you found it to be a satisfying career, and would you have any advice? Well, my advice will be to try to collaborate as much as possible with clinical colleagues, with colleagues from the basic sciences. Sometimes that's easier say that, that done. Be proactive, um, be open-minded, be passionate about your ideas. And I think that, um, yeah, the key word, at least for me, is, is collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. Collaboration and a passion for moving things uh, from very basic observations in the bench towards, uh, you know, preclinical or clinical studies that involve uh, actual patients that are experiencing 
disease. Uh, disease. It's, it's very difficult to do things on your own anymore these days. So it's the, almost the, the impossible. Long scientist, to, yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's great advice. Well, thank you for visiting and thank you for being here. Uh, we're happy to read any emails from our listeners on a future podcast. We email us at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. Uh, thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. The team includes Donna Litwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, director of communications, and also thanks to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. <laughs>